0: The following program is a PBS Wisconsin original production.
1: Wisconsin's Democratic governor is suing the state legislature after years of power grabs from Republican lawmakers. And the United Auto Workers strike comes to an end. How will the deal impact local workers? I'm Frederica Freiberg, tonight on Here and Now, details of the governor's lawsuit against the state legislature. Then we check in with a local UAW president on his way to ratify a new contract. A town supervisor details life for residents without clean water. And the next in our series, Wisconsin in Black and White Health Divides. It's Here and Now for November 3. Funding for Here and Now is provided by the Focus Fund for Journalism and Friends of PBS Wisconsin. Democratic Governor Tony Evers says he's had enough. And so this week he filed a lawsuit against the state legislature saying Republicans are holding hostage pay raises for tens of thousands of UW state employees. We should know PBS Wisconsin is part of UW Madison. Senior political reporter Zach Schultz has more.
2: Earlier this month, the Republican led Joint Committee on Employment Relations, co chaired by Assembly Speaker Robin Voss, signed off on raises for all state workers, except employees of the universities of Wisconsin. It was the last straw for Democratic Governor Tony Evers. The
3: Republicans decided that 35,000 people that work for the UW system shouldn't get a raise without having any legislation that that gives them that authority. That's just bull****. And so that was the defining moment right there.
2: The raises were already approved in the state's biennial budget. The lawsuit, brought by Attorney General Josh Call on behalf of the governor, alleges this and other actions by GOP-led committees are violating the Wisconsin Constitution and intruding into executive powers. Evers further says Republican legislators are unconstitutionally obstructing basic functions of government. Other alleged violations from Republican-controlled committees include the Joint Committee on Finance has repeatedly blocked conservation projects selected under the Knowles-Nelson Stewardship Program, And the Joint Committee for Review of Administrative Rules is blocking updates to the state's commercial building standards and ethics standards for licensed professionals.
3: There's nothing in law or the budget that was passed, which is law, to say that uh, the speaker or the Republicans in general, uh, leadership can say, well, that 4%, you're not gonna get it, or you might get it if you do X, Y, and Z. None of that's in law. So that is an illegal act, and so that pushed me over the edge. I mean, the other issues, you know, I do believe it's just a, you know, further effort that started before I became governor with the lame duck law and all the things that they've done about not approving my appointees or not, you know, all of that. It's all part of it. But when you mess with 35,000 people at one time, that's enough.
2: Are you looking for the Supreme Court if they take this case to make a broad ruling, or would you be satisfied if they issued a narrow ruling specifically on UW employees or J. Kraw or any of the other committees? I think the
3: legislature would be. It'd be helpful for the legislature to have a broad uh, idea of what their what their authority is and what's mine. That would be the best of all alternatives. But we have to, you know, at the at the end of the day, we have to make sure that we pay people what they should be paid. So I think the best alternative would be a broad, sweeping thing saying, this is what your job is, this is what the governor's job is, start behaving.
2: You mentioned the lame duck laws and some of these actions you're referring to are, came out of the lame duck laws. So is this in effect another lawsuit attempt to relitigate some of those issues that were passed into law under the previous administration?
3: yeah I mean because they're because of that actions uh, we, we we've we've always felt that they are wrongheaded. And so if we have to make some changes, that's fine. I think broadly speaking it, the the way the Republicans have essentially uh, taken more and more power over time from the executive branch. Uh, we have to we have to stop that, and we have to understand that they're co-equal parts of government, the judicial, the executive, and, and the legislative, and that's the way it's supposed to work. It's not working that way now.
2: Would you have filed this lawsuit under a different makeup of the Supreme Court?
3: Yes, oh, gosh, yes, oh, gosh, yes. I, I think we're gonna get more than four votes on this one. I mean, people should be able to understand what that there is there is the authority in all three branches. So at court, absolutely, this this recent thing, whether a new judge is there or not, that's irrelevant to this. We would have filed that regardless.
2: Speaker Voss said in a statement, today's lawsuit by Governor Evers and Attorney General Call is an attempt to eliminate the 4% raises given to all state employees by the legislature. And Senate Majority Leader Devin LeMahieu said the governor is working to diminish the voice of Wisconsinites by limiting the authority of the legislature and unduly strengthening his own administration. You have dealt with the legislature and rules, even as your time as superintendent of public instruction. How longstanding are some of these issues when it comes to the balance of power between the executive and the legislature?
3: Yeah, I'd say it accelerated with my election. I, I think it's always... A, a little bit of a issue uh, going forward, but because it's just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, uh, it it became a thing, and we we have to we have to deal with it. So I. I'm glad we filed this suit, and we anticipate winning this suit.
2: A year ago, you were talking about a reset with Republicans in the legislature. Since then, they have voted down your appointees, and you filed this lawsuit. Was a reset ever realistic? Was it always going to be limited, or is it just the current state of
3: politics? It's the current state of politics, but we, had, you know, we passed the budget. I signed the budget. Where we brought shared revenue to you know, Milwaukee and other places across the state, every municipality. So we've had we've had some successes, but what we we can't stand for is people not following the law and following what we've agreed to, and uh, and we did not agree to what what the, the speaker is doing now.
2: All right, Governor Evers, thanks for your time. Thank you, appreciate it.
1: After striking for nearly 6 weeks, the United Auto Workers Union has settled with the big 3 car makers. Votes to ratify the deal are underway, including by union members from Wisconsin at GM and Stellantis, the former Chrysler. The GM contract deal with the companies includes a 70 percent starting wage hike to $30 an hour and the ability to reach the top pay scale of $42 an hour. For more on the union battle to recoup losses workers took in concessions to help the companies stave off bankruptcy, we turn to Steve Frisk, UAW Local 722 president at GM in Hudson. Who's in Detroit right now for the vote? And Steve, thanks very much for being here. Thanks for having me. So, what is it like to have settled and be off to vote to ratify?
0: Well, it's exciting. And we were out for uh, just uh, about 39 days this time um, after being out 42 four years ago. So, it it was was a long time out. And, uh, you know, it takes a toll, especially on a lot of our younger members who who just started working here and and don't make the top wage. Uh, It it takes a huge amount of uh, sacrifice and dedication to be out there on that picket line, which we were 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, But it's exciting that we got a tentative contract. Uh, What I'm reading and hearing so far sounds uh, very uh, favorable. Um, We will be rolling that out this afternoon for all the presidents and chairmen of the UAW General Motors uh, departments across the country and then we will take a vote on whether to send it to the membership for a ratification vote. So would, that's what we we will be doing this afternoon.
1: Would you so. expect this to be ratified by members?
0: What I've seen so far, yes, I really do. It, it's a huge increase, especially for our younger members. Um, it's bringing them up to uh, the wages that, that the legacy employees that have been here for a long time are at. Um, it's getting rid of the tiers, which we have been arguing and fighting for since they were implemented back after the near bankruptcy in 2008 and 2009. Um, Unions were based on equal pay for equal work. That's our belief. We believe that these younger people should have a path to get to the full wage and uh, and make the same as the people that they're working next to. And this contract uh, allows that to happen. Uh, Cost of living uh, is back in the contract, which we had suspended since the bankruptcy timeframe. So I, I really expect this contract to pass. Um, we obviously need to go over some stuff yet because we haven't seen everything in that contract book yet. But um, I'm very hopeful that we will pass it and send it to the membership for ratification.
1: What does the contract deal born of the UAW strike say about the new might of the union?
0: I, we, it's a totally different leadership, uh, as I'm sure you know. Um, there was a lot of corruption in the UAW, and and. Uh, uh, the administrative caucus that was in there for since basically since the union started has now been replaced with a one member, one vote. Uh, so Sean Fain has only been in office for since February of this year. Um, they had obviously a different approach to uh, to the strike. Um, normally they pick uh, a company and a target company and, and and go after them to try to get an agreement. And then the other two uh, companies, that we call it pattern bargaining, will basically go up on the same Type of contract pretty close to what the, the pattern bargain the original place was. Uh, this time he uh, pitted all three against each other, um, and to see who would get out the best deals. And I, I think it kept the companies on their toes. They did not know what uh, plants were going to be uh, uh, maybe struck next, and they and they couldn't uh, couldn't prepare for it. And I think it was very successful. Um, and, uh, and that's why I think we, uh, all three agreements are, are uh, probably gonna be ratified. And uh, because I think it's, it's the biggest gains that we've gotten in my lifetime since I've worked here. So.
1: Speaking of uh, big gains, uh, do increased labor costs jeopardize automakers as they transition to electric vehicles?
0: That's what the company would like you to believe. Um, you know, labor costs are, are a very minute uh portion of what a vehicle costs. It's it's typically in the five to seven percent range. Um they like to say that, but these companies have been making record profits for the last, you know, uh 10 years, last decade. They've made over 250 billion in profits between the three of them. Um, CEO pay has, uh, went up 40% in the last four years. The cost of vehicles have gone up 30% in the last four years. Inflation's gone up just under 19% and our wages have gone up 6%. So if they want to blame it on our wages, that's, that's, that's just not factual. It's just, once again, uh, you know, they, they don't want to share the money that they make with their workers. That's not just a problem with the big three. That's a problem across every, uh, every business and, and, uh, where they don't want to share, profits with the people that actually make them the profits, and that's their workers.
1: All right. We need to leave it there. Steve Frisk uh, in Detroit, thanks very much.
0: Thank you for having us. You have a nice day.
1: Town of Campbell residents on French Island this week filed a $42 million lawsuit against the neighboring city of La Crosse for contamination from the cancer-causing Forever Chemicals, or PFAS. Red dots on this DNR map show areas where water samples on the island exceeded hazard levels. The agency has named the City of La Crosse as the responsible party for the widespread contamination related to firefighting foam that was used for decades at the city's airport. PFAS were first discovered in La Crosse municipal wells and then in private wells. More than 2,000 residents there are receiving bottled water from the DNR as a result. For an update on the town of Campbell's water woes, we turn to Lee Donahue, a member of the town's Board of Supervisors. And thanks very much for being here.
4: Yes, thanks for inviting me.
1: So, Lee, how long have residents been using bottled water and and what kind of hardship is that?
4: So, uh, residents have been using bottled water uh, that has been paid for by the DNR since spring of 2021. We were first notified uh, that there was a possibility that there was contamination in our water in October of 2020, so we're coming up on three years. Uh, And the hardship is, imagine, trying to move a five-gallon jug of water. They're unwieldy, uh, they're heavy, uh, you have to find a place that you can store them that is climate-controlled. You can't leave them in your garage or your front porch or back porch or your breezeway because they will freeze during the winter time. So uh, it's a tremendous hardship uh, for people to find places to store them and, and to be able to just heft them around and uh, and deal with the physicality of using large bottles of water.
1: How long before the DNR started supplying bottled water was uh, PFAS seeping into the wells?
4: Well, truthfully, the PFAS could have been seeping into the wells as early as 1970. Uh, That is the period of time that the city of La Crosse Airport was using the AFFF. And uh, it's likely that it's been there for 40 to 50 years. We really don't know. It was only discovered first in 2014 in one of the city wells that's co-located on the island. And then it was found in a second well in 2016. And then we were notified in 2020.
1: So what is it like for people living there to have this dangerous contamination part of their everyday lives?
4: Uh, You change everything that you do. From when you wake up in the morning and you brush your teeth with a little bottle of water, at uh, at your your bath at your sink, uh, you know you can't grow foods that you eat in the in the soil. Um, you can't use your sprinkler to uh, water foods that you would grow in your backyard. I have a raspberry patch that's probably fifty feet long and ten feet wide. But I haven't been able to eat a raspberry for years. Uh, it's, it's hard. It, it changes everything that you do.
1: How, how will the $402 million directed from the governor and the $125 million in the state budget for PFAS mitigation help address the problem in the town of Campbell?
4: Well, a lot of that re- really depends on Senate Bill 312 and how that bill is structured to be able to help small communities that are on private wells access that PFAS Trust Fund. Uh, It's unclear whether that bill will pass in its current form. I know it's already been amended once and now there's discussion about further amendments that it might come to the floor next week.
1: Do people wanna stay on French Island or are people hesitant to locate there?
4: Well, I would say if it wasn't the water problem it's a glorious place to live. We're a small island. We have our own fire department and police department. And uh, we're hugged by two rivers. It's it's beautiful. It's lovely. Um, it's a small town community. But when you can't drink the water out of your tap and you have to maneuver these very heavy, large bottles so that you have a safe alternative source it's, uh, it's a struggle for many people, and, and many people have chosen to move elsewhere.
1: What would be your advice to others in the state suffering uh, the same kind of thing?
4: Well, I think the most important thing is to make certain that the water you are drinking is, in fact, safe.
1: Uh, Supervisor Lee Donahue, thanks very much, and, and, and good luck with this. Turning now to our series of special reports on race with Wisconsin in Black and White, in partnership with the Nehemiah Center for Urban Leadership Development. Last week, reporter Nathan Denzine explored the social determinants of health and why they are so important to health outcomes. Tonight, we take a look at maternal and infant health, where Wisconsin's disparities are stark. Here's the next installment of Wisconsin in Black and White, Health divides.
5: The harsh reality is, from the first day they are born, black babies are much less likely to thrive and more likely to die than white infants in Wisconsin. The same holds true for their mothers. In fact, this has been true since the first infant and maternal mortality data was gathered in 1912.
6: I think one of the big uh, things that people don't realize is that this is a problem that we have identified more than a century ago.
5: Tiffany Green is a professor for Population Health Sciences at UW-Madison. She says that while overall maternal mortality has greatly decreased in the last century, the gap between black and white mothers and infants has persisted, especially in Wisconsin.
6: We still unfortunately have among the highest black infant mortality rates in the country, meaning um, black babies that don't reach their first birthday. Black um, birthing people have about uh, five times the, the pregnancy related mortality rate relative to their white counterparts in Wisconsin.
7: In general, we are leaders in the nation as it relates to many of the inequities that we see.
5: Dr. Jasmine Zapata is the chief medical officer for community health at the Wisconsin Department of Health Services.
7: There's no one answer. We could talk about this for hours and hours. It's multifactorial.
5: Advocates say one potential reason we see disparities is because healthcare providers can carry implicit biases into the clinic.
7: So a lot of times when we talk about implicit bias and talk about racism in our healthcare system, a lot of people think about like direct interpersonal racism, where somebody would come up to me and say, I don't want you to treat me because you're black. That's not a lot of what we see. A lot of it is unintentional.
5: Because of those unintentional biases, Zapata says black people are less likely to go to a doctor when something is wrong, which can lead to worse health outcomes.
7: There are many people, especially in the maternal and child health fields, that have access, that have insurance, and they're still not attending their healthcare appointments. Just because you have insurance and you can physically make an appointment, is it somewhere that you feel safe and comfortable?
5: But while access to quality healthcare can be a large driver in outcomes, national data shows that even the infants of the richest black mothers suffer worse health outcomes than the babies of the poorest white mothers.
6: I think we focus a lot on hospitals and doctors because that is something we can easily wrap our heads around. But the reality is um, there are a lot of reasons, and I think they have a lot more to do with the social environment.
5: And the societal environment for Black Wisconsinites is one defined by racism. When it comes to where Black Wisconsinites live, only a quarter own their own home. They face one of the highest income gaps in the country and are five times more likely to live in a food desert than white people.
6: A lot of people have linked um, things like segregation, um, things like the, the resource-deprived environments to poor uh, to the risk of prematurity, and those things matter.
5: Dr. Zapata says she experienced this difference in outcomes firsthand when she had her second child.
6: I got pregnant with my
7: second child, a little baby girl, I was so excited. And she was due on January 2nd, but on September 20th, I had a sharp pain in my lower abdomen.
5: When it happened, she was in class for medical school and knew something was wrong. Doctors told her that it was just false labor, but when she saw blood a few minutes later, she went to the hospital.
7: Ultimately, within two hours, I was in an emergency C-section and I delivered a one and a half pound baby who didn't cry when she came out. When babies come out, they're supposed to be kicking, screaming, crying, it was completely silent. Her
5: daughter was then taken to the neonatal intensive care unit to start her breathing.
7: It was so hard for me at that moment because I knew all the statistics about black birth outcomes.
5: After three weeks in the NICU, Zapata's baby was able to thrive and is now a very healthy teenager. But Zapata knew the outcome could have been much different.
7: I knew that it was an honor that she was there with me because there are so many other birthing people and families, particularly Black women, Black birthing people who do not have that same outcome
6: there are reasons above and beyond sort of these individual level characteristics that that don't explain why we are seeing these disparities.
5: But there is work being done to bring parity to birth outcomes for black mothers and infants. In 2022, Governor Evers announced $16 million in additional funding for DHS to work on closing those gaps.
7: We're currently working on this um, with intensity and passion.
5: Dr. Zapata says there are three big things that money is going toward. Increasing access to healthcare for black mothers and infants, educating current healthcare practitioners about the issues, and increasing the number of black doctors and nurses.
7: We will have a bigger impact if we can go upstream and focus on how can we eliminate some of the very factors and social determinants of health that um, cause some of these health outcomes in the first place
5: along with the 16 million dollars, healthcare providers in Dane County have another effort to improve the social determinants of health called Connect RX. Connect RX is a program that provides support to pregnant black people at risk,
6: making sure that families at risk of losing their places are getting getting housing, making sure that they are getting food. I've I've heard been privileged to hear stories about people getting employment that they need.
5: The program also connects mothers with doulas if they choose, and with an individual community health worker, both during pregnancy and after.
6: I'm just stunned at the work that they've been able to do um, that addresses these social determinants.
5: But even with these programs, Green says more needs to be done.
6: When we talk about things like Medicaid expansion, Um, which we have refused to do in our state, um, despite the fact that places like Georgia and Mississippi have expanded postpartum Medicaid for up to a year.
5: The Wisconsin legislature removed Medicaid expansion from the governor's budget again in 2023, making Wisconsin one of only a few states which has not expanded postpartum coverage.
6: If we live in a a Wisconsin where everybody is able to reach their highest potential, everybody needs access to a, a provider.
5: While expanded coverage remains elusive, health officials look to fill the gaps and improve the outcomes wherever they can. For Here and Now, I'm Nathan Denzine.
1: Next week on our program, Here and Now reporter Aditi Debnath brings us the first of two stories speaking with Wisconsin residents with family and friends now in Israel and Gaza. Hear their fears and hopes in the midst of heightened violent rhetoric and social media misinformation. Also, what led to this point and what people are doing to help. For more on this and other issues facing Wisconsin, visit our website at PBSWisconsin.org, and then click on the News tab. That's our program for tonight. I'm Frederica Freiberg. Have a good weekend. Funding for Here and Now is provided by the Focus Fund for Journalism and Friends of PBS Wisconsin.